Well, good morning. Welcome to Battleground Community Church this morning. You know, there's no bumper video this morning. That is because we are taking a, a two-week break and focusing on a holiday we all know is Easter. So find 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be talking about how to have hope in times of fear. And so this week we're shorting setting the foundation. There's nothing more foundational in Scripture than 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because it is about the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the a hope that comes through the resurrection. And so I just want us to read literally part of what we're going to read today has been read by the church since the inception of a Christian faith. It's just a profound thought. We're going to look at that today. So let's stand to our feet. 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 8. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the word of God. Lord, as we come to you today, in times of, of difficulty, of uncertainty, Lord, some of us go to the gas station and have to spend $100 just to put a tank of gas in our vehicles to get to work, to work all day and give our money in taxes. And Lord, sometimes we get tired and we get frustrated. And then there's COVID and then there's a war targeting innocent people who just want to live. And we, Lord, we can get hopeless. We can get discouraged. We can get cynical. And so, Lord, we have stopped our study through James because we need to have hope in the times in which we live. Hope in our very life. And Lord, we have centered ourselves around this central and tenet of the faith that your son rose from the grave. And so, Lord, remind us of his importance, of his truthfulness, of the implication that if this is true, how then shall we live? Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot at stake to whether Jesus is a historical person or whether he is simply a figment in the imagination of Christians. Did he exist at all? And what does it really matter? And would you believe that in places that call themselves churches just like us, this is not necessarily that clear? There is the historical Jesus, and there's what we might call the liberal Jesus. So let's think about that for a minute. 
Because some of the people you love, you may think, are going to, to a church that preaches the same way we preach, and they may not even really care or believe whether Jesus really rose from the dead, and if it is, what's the big deal? You see, we begin with the God who created everything. And since He created everything, He created me and you. And if He did, then He's got the authority and the right to call the shots in His creation and with His created. And we as people are the only ones in all of creation that dare shake our fist in the hands of the Creator God and say, we are not going to do what you say to do. Everything else obeys. But man... And so we sinned and it's separated. It brought judgment. Enter the point of whether Jesus is a historical Jesus. Because we believe that God the Son came and He lived a life perfect to meet God's perfect standards because we didn't. He stood in our place, took our wrath so that we may not only be, be forgiven but declared righteous and be in a Family, We believe we know this is true precisely because He lives, because He ascended to the right hand of the Father and is coming one time in glory and power. In other words, we believe that the historical Jesus accomplished something. The best way to remember what He accomplished is P, the word P. There's three P's, penalty, power, and presence. Penalty, power, and presence. We believe that historical Jesus accomplished the penalty for us. Well, our sin created debt, so we paid it. We are justified. We are declared righteous. Not only that, we believe that Jesus accomplished power over our sin. That's what your life and my life is doing. That's why it's so hard. He accomplished something in my life. It's called sanctification. I am gradually being transformed like Christ. The power over sin is becoming broken. And one day, the presence of sin will be gone forever. Called my glorification. He accomplished that. Or he didn't. The liberal Jesus says, it's all on you. All Jesus is to the liberal for the liberal Jesus is a good example for you. He's a moral example. Whether he lived, eh, no big deal. He, you know, you can read a good story about a good person, whether he's true or not. You can learn a lesson from him. That's all Jesus is really for. You can have, you can have just be good like Jesus. You're going to be okay. Do your best. Jesus is somewhere between a spare tire and a therapist. I was, I was underneath the truck working on my trailer lights the other day, and I looked up there to the spare tire, and I said, I ain't checked the air in that lately. We just assume it is there, right? We don't ever think about it until, unless your tire goes flat on the way home. And then all of a sudden, you need it. That we wanted Jesus sometimes. It's there when you need Him. And when you don't need Him, you put Him underneath the truck to tie it up. He's there if you need Him. If not, or maybe He's sort of like your therapist. Just sits there quietly and listens, doesn't really give you any demands, maybe occasionally a little bit of advice. Just love yourself, do better, here's a pill. If that's the real Jesus, you see, we're all in trouble and there is no hope. All we can ever hope to do with our fear is cope with it, deal with it, but there is never no promise to be victory over it. That's the, what's it lays in front, that's what's at stake, whether Jesus is really alive or not. To that issue, 
the church wanted to make sure that, that we are clear about what we believe. It was so important that the early church, whether you were literate or not, would teach you the gospel. They would teach you the gospel through how we sang, the hymns that we would sing, and the creeds that we believed. And the passage that I just read is one of the earliest creeds. And so let's just think through this for a minute in the text. Let's just go with the date of A.D. 30. Jesus may have died on the cross, 33, 30. Let's just go with 30. Nice round number. Ground zero, the cross. Remember, he also died on Passover, the Jewish holiday. Fifty days later, still Jewish holidays going on. We have Pentecost, remember? Pentecost is held in Jerusalem, the very same place Jesus was killed and buried 50 days before. Hold that thought. We'll talk about Pentecost in a little bit. Stretch it ahead 25 years. A.D. 55 to 57, Paul writes this letter that we're reading this morning. But Paul says, I am writing to you about something that I've already preached to you when I was with you. So when was Paul with the church in Corinth? He was with the church in Corinth in A.D. 51. But here's the deal. Paul's only given them a creed that he has already received. So that means the reception of this gospel creed, the states that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, was received prior to A.D. 51. So that puts us about 20 years after the death of Christ. So when did he receive it? Well, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Most people believe he received this creed anywhere between A.D. 32 and A.D. 38, and I'll show you why. Galatians 1, look at verse 15. By the way, sidebar, even among the most liberal scholars that we would consider liberal, 1 Corinthians and Galatians are undisputed Pauline books that do not stand to be disputed by anyone. Just a little sidebar there. Verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was, ple- was pleased to reveal His Son in me, in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. So, Paul's converted. He doesn't immediately go to Peter or to the apostles and say, Hey, brothers, let me, tell me about this Jesus I just had an encounter with on the road. Instead, he goes into the Arabian desert. And whether he is there for three years and then there's another three years, or whether it was simply three years, which most people think, that after three years, he receives from Jesus a direct revelation of the gospel. He didn't receive it from anyone. That's what he's saying. We could read in other places where he said he was caught up. And so he has the gospel. What did he do? He went to Damascus, and then he went to Jerusalem, and he visited. That word means he abided with them. Goes back later, if you keep reading the passage, 14 years, and does this all over again. So Paul receives, during this time, 
this creed, this creed that was affirmed by a direct revelation from Jesus that the gospel that the apostles had and the gospel that he had received was the same gospel. So we are just within a few years, brothers and sisters, of the cross that this creed was in Paul's hands. And you have to ask yourself, where did it start? Get to that later. This creed's important because it predates the Gospels. It's too early to develop the legend. You've got to have years to develop the legend. It was early. Jesus is dead. This creedal confession then becomes part of the church and has been ever since. The Christian faith rests on a resurrected Messiah, not a dead one. A dead one can be an example for you. But he can't save you. The historical truth of the resurrection is our firm foundation in times of fear. I just want to look at five historical truths of the resurrected Jesus this morning. And there's more. I just want to hit these. Uh, first, and I wanted to preach the whole sermon on this, and I decided it was just too much. Look down at the implication. Truth number one. Everything hangs on this truth, the resurrection. Look at verse 16 to 19. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ also perished. If in Christ... We have hope in this life only. We are most people to be pitied. Just some basic truths that we can get out of that. Look at verse 16. No resurrection, no Christ. There's no, Messi- there's no Messiah. There's no Savior coming for you. Not only that. Look at verse 17. This is the most sobering one. No resurrection, no answer for sin. Notice Paul's assumption. It was only during the Age of Enlightenment that we started to dare say there was no such thing as God. That's ridiculous. And the whole world bears witness to that. It's ridiculous to think that you created yourself. He said, here's the reality. If there's a, there's there's still a God. (laughs) If there's no resurrection, there's still a God. And we've still sinned against them. There's still a problem in this world, but we don't have an answer for it. That's what he's saying. That's, we're still in our sin. We're still, we've still offended the holy God. And Jesus is not the answer if he is not resurrected. You can see the obvious one. You see it in verse 17 and verse 19. That if there's no resurrection, there's no hope. There's no purpose of life. There's no point. <laughs> I mean, another brother who's worked too hard in our life. I, I got... Parts of my body, it is wore out because I worked so many hours. If there's no resurrection, we are just working ourselves to the bone for nothing. We should be eating and drinking and be merry because the Darwinists are right and only the strong survive. If Jesus is not alive, then they're right. We shouldn't help the homeless. We shouldn't help the poor and oppressed. They need to die and get out of our way so the strong can make it. Isn't that what we're taught in school and college? <laughs> he said, I'm going to have no resurrection. They're right. 
we should all be, you know, eating on the, sitting on the couch or partying today because, you know, when you die, it's all over. He said it's worse than that. It's more bleak than that because we've all lost people that we love. Look at verse 18. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope for those who died. There's no hope for those that we've loved, that, that we've lost. They're gone forever. You can see, no matter who you are, no matter what age you are, eventually these truths will sink into your life. That everything rests whether on Jesus is alive or not. And here's what we know, truth number two. The tomb was empty. He gives us the reason in the creed, in verse 4, says that he, Jesus, was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. See, here's what we know. Jesus was physically killed in actual history. Jesus was killed physically and historically. We know this not simply because we have our Bible, but because we have history. We have people who hated Christianity that will bear witness to the fact that Jesus was killed. Which means, by the way, if he was killed, then he was what? He was born. He was alive. He was a person in history. Let me just read you one. This is a, what we call a hostile witness, a guy named Tacitus. He's a Roman historian. And you can tell he is not a fan of Christians. He's trying to give a reason, uh, an explanation why Nero burned everything down. You remember that in history? Which happened later. But listen to what he says. Therefore, to stop... Now, this is a quote. Therefore, to stop the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. The pernicious superstition was checked for a moment only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself where all things horrible and shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. So what was he saying? Is, is this guy a friend? No, he calls Christianity a disease. Here's what he said. We killed its founder under the reign of Pontius Pilate. What does the Bible say? It was killed under Pontius Pilate. Jesus was a historical figure. Not only that, we have Jewish, the Jewish historian Josephus, and by the way, this particular quote is affirmed by even Jewish people as becoming from Josephus. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was also known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. And the tribe of Christians so named after him have not disappeared to this day. Jesus was a historical person who actually died and was put in a grave. The grave was guarded. You remember that? We can see that in Matthew. Matthew 27 62 to 66, the religious leaders knew that Jesus had said he was going to be raised. They had 
They had somehow put it more together than even his disciples had. And so they asked for a guard. In verse 63, he says, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, While he was still alive, after three days I will rise. In verse 65, Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. There's some debate whether the guard was the Roman soldiers or whether it was the temple guards. Either way, the, the, the tomb was guarded with men who had a cost if, if, if somebody stole the body. And we know what happened. And this, by the way, has all never been... This never been the question to recently whether Jesus rose from the dead. Did you know that? It was always a question of what happened to the body. And we're at, we've, now we say, you know, Jesus didn't even, he wasn't even a person. He didn't allow it. The, back in history, in real history, the question was never whether he rose from the dead. The question was what happened to it? What happened to his body? It's gone. So the soldiers in Matthew 28 go and tell the religious leaders his body's gone. He's, he's gone. And so they give him us what he called in verse 12, Matthew 28, verse 12, a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers to say, the disciples came by night and stole him away, and we were sleeping. You know this is going to cause heads to roll. And in verse, eight, verse 14 it says, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Whew, that would have been a lot of money. I should keep my head intact. So they took the money. Now whatever you believe about that, here's, here's the truth. The grave was empty. All the core of the, of the Gospels always agree. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, the tomb was empty, the angels appeared to the witnesses. Look at 1 Corinthians now back to chapter 15. Paul's very... Paul's very clear after he gives us, well, if there is no resurrection, there is no hope, there is no answer to sin, there is no hope for our people who have died. Then he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's not done. Paul's not just going to make the case that Jesus is alive, but he's going to make the case because Jesus is alive, one day our bodies will be resurrected too. That word, but in fact, means but now. But right now he's alive. So how can we say with certainty that Jesus is alive? Why could he say this is fact? This is the way it is right now. Truth number three. Now witnesses are numerous. Verses five to eight. It says that Jesus appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers, listen, at one time, that's important, most of whom are still alive, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, last of all, he appeared to me, Paul. The fact is this, is nobody's sitting there with their cell phone beside the grave saying, man, I'm going to make a killing on this, I got this on, I got this on video. And nobody was there. When he, when he walked out of the grave. But what we have is numerous eyewitness accounts that saw him, ate with him, talked to him, touched him. 
Not only one, but large groups. Why is that important? Because one of the things that's went around for years is that these these distraught disciples just hallucinated. They just thought he seen them. This was this has appeared in church in our church history in heresies that it was just a spiritual resurrection. No, no, Jesus physically resurrected. Hallucinations are individual experiences. Hallucinations don't happen. The same hallucination to large group of people happen at various times in different places. All at the same time. No, these people experience something. Here's another one. These witnesses are not on this list. There's another one on the list. They're the first ones. There are, as far as the gospel accounts, the first the first witnesses, and listen, the first evangelists were women. This was embarrassing in a male-dominated society. Just gotta, we, don't, we don't feel the, the, are you serious? But listen, if you were going to write a story, if you were going to develop a legend, what you wouldn't put in it in a male-dominated society was the eyewitness account of women as the first people who saw them. In the court of law, if, if a man did something to a woman and she's bearing witness to it, it would take two women to equal one man's account. They had no credibility in that time. This is called this truthfulness because it's so embarrassing. You wouldn't make this up. And yet all the gospel accounts record the first witnesses and evangelists of the resurrection were women. This was no story. This was no legend. Not only that, the disciples saw him. You got Peter the denier. <laughs> he saw him. This was, Jesus, this was Peter's. Stands up, Acts 2, 32. One of the first things he says was, This Jesus God raised up. And of all that, we are all witnesses. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 39, listen to what he says. And we are Witnesses of all that Jesus did, both in country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, listen, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Listen, we're not saying, Peter's saying, I'm not saying I just saw him. I'm telling you, we went to the outback. Right? We, we ate together. Not only that, you had Paul the persecutor, who, by the way, wasn't looking for Jesus when he got saved. Jesus knocked him off of his horse and saved him sovereignly. You were saved the same way. He said, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. <laughs> he keeps going in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 15. He said, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace to me was not in vain. Paul followed him because he saw him. We've already talked about James, hadn't we? When we introduced James, you remember James? The brother, the unbelieving brother. John 7, 5, his brothers didn't believe him. Galatians 2, 9, but after Jesus' death, who, who, who arises as a pillar of the church? 
James. What happened? What would have changed his mind? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7 says he appeared to him. That's what changed his mind. He saw him alive. Not only that, discount all of these individual accounts because they're individuals with something to gain by testifying to it. Discount them all. And he says, you still got 500 witnesses. Listen, this is important. When he wrote that letter to the churches, those guys, most of them were still alive. Why was he telling them that? It's because you can go over there and ask them and have a conversation with them. They are there. Brothers and sisters, we are not following a blind faith. And he wasn't asking the church in Corinth to. He said, this, Jesus is alive. We saw him. If you don't believe us, go ask the witnesses. There are more than 500. He saw him at one time. So it's no apparition. Brothers and sisters, this is a reasonable faith. To an event that was witnessed by hundreds of whom those hundreds gave their lives for what they knew to be true. And remember this, some people give their life for what they know to be true, but no one dies for a lie. And those guys saw him and they gave their life for it because they knew he was alive. And they gave their life for what they knew to be true. Brothers and sisters, no matter what you think, we must deal with this truth. This is a Christian faith that was once for all passed down. Truth number four. This is just too strange to make up. It's true. It's part of our the culture here. It's just too strange to make up. Oh, I was I will, I had a different passage. Turn with me to Luke twenty four. You can just remember this event, verse seventeen. I was trying to think what is the best way to help us understand without looking at a lot of passages. The hope of the disciples when Jesus was alive. What was their hope? I think it's the, the, those two guys on the road to Emmaus are probably one of the best ones. You remember, they're coming back, and Jesus, is, Jesus has been killed. He's in the grave. It's been three days, and they're having a conversation about it. <laughs> Jesus walks up. The Bible says they, he, he, they were kept from under, understanding this was Jesus. And Jesus engaged them. He said, what y'all talking about? He said, we're talking about what everybody else is talking about. You the only one in Jerusalem that don't know what's going on? Jesus says, what's going on? You see it in verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, verse 20, and all our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified, verse 21, listen, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it's now the third day since all these things happened. Do you see it? What was their hope? Well, we thought he was the one who was going to physically redeem Israel. He was going to change our culture. He was going to change our people. He was going to change our nation. He was going to rule. It was going to be a physical, absolute rule. And we were going to benefit from it. But he's dead and it's gone. It's been three days. Hopeless. Question. What were the disciples doing for these three days? Were they thinking, were they sitting around in the room thinking, how can we best capitalize on Jesus' death? You know, like the politicians do. This is sort of bad news. How can we spin this story, right? We're going to spin it. We're going to sell it. 
uh, you know, we got to get out ahead of this story before it gets out. We, we got to control the narrative. <laughs> Sounds like politicians. That's not what they were doing. <laughs> what were they doing? They were hopeless. John chapter 20, verse 19, tells us what they were doing. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. That's what they were doing. They were scared to death. They were saying, we're next. Jesus is dead, and we're next. They weren't looking for him. They weren't planning for him. They weren't making up a story. They weren't control, con- starting a story that they hoped was going to develop into a legend in a hundred years. They were scared to death. They were hopeless. They were afraid. Until, verse 19 says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And we have said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Here's the truth. What took away their fear, what brought them to hope, what made them unlock that door and walk outside, it was the resurrected Jesus touched him they ate with him truth number five when related to this jews and pagans were willing to embrace a doctrine like the resurrection the idea of physical now the physical side's important it's important for the christian faith it was also an important issue to jews and pagans you can get anybody to buy something spiritual maybe it happened maybe it not you know it's just spiritual. It's just mystical. It, you know, it's just, maybe it's just in your mind. No, no, we're saying physical resurrection. The idea of physical resurrection was foreign to Jews and to pagans. You can see this in Acts 17, verse 32, when Paul was at the Areopagus. You remember? He engaged all these pagans that were very religious. He told them they were very religious. And he goes on to expound the, the gospel and the resurrection of the dead And it says in verse 32 of Acts 17, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, hmm, we'll hear you again about this. Either responses tells you what? Never heard that before. That's the craziest thing I've ever seen. This is sort of a wordy quote, but it's a good one. N.T. Wright, he's got a... A very famous book called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's one of them real two-inchers. Listen to what he said. The basic tenet of human existence and experience is accepted as axiomatic throughout the ancient world. Once people have gone by the road of death, they do not return. When the ancient classical world spoke of and denied resurrection... There should be no controversy about the word and its cognates referred to. Resurrection was not only a way, was not one way of describing what death consisted of. It was a way of describing something everyone knew did not happen. The idea that death could be reversed, undone, could not work backwards, not even in myth was it permitted. No one expected Jesus to rise from the dead, yet it emerged as the central tenet of the Christian faith embraced by Jews and pagans alike. 
Remember 50 days after the death of Christ. What was the holiday? Pentecost. And the disciples were there. The Spirit had came down just as He was promised. And listen, just got to deal with this. Got to have an answer for it. Peter stands up. 50 days after Jesus' death in Jerusalem, where he was 50 days earlier, killed and buried and declared to everyone there, Jesus has raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God where He's ruling and reigning and you're in trouble. And devout Jewish people who had everything to lose repented of their sins and followed Jesus. And they lost everything when they did it. They abandoned their beliefs. They abandoned their traditions. They were cast out from their own people. And they followed Him by the thousands. Why did they do that? Because He was alive. That's why they did it. No one ever said that on, on that day. Hold on a second. His grave's right down the street. No one went over there and pushed the rock out of the way and brought out the body. The grave was empty because he was alive. Paul then comes along, bringing the same message to the pagans, the Gentiles. That's us, most of us. It's me. And they repent and they believe. And he's telling them today in 1 Corinthians 15, if you don't believe me, go over there and ask the witnesses what they saw. And they'll tell you, Jesus is alive. So, the earliest church's faith was centered on the resurrection. It was centered on this, sin, this simple message. Jesus lived Jesus died, Jesus rose again. So what? There's only one place to find biblical hope. And I mean that biblical hope. Oh, there's hope. There's, you know, I, I hope it don't rain today. <laughs> I hope I get a nap, right? I hope the line at, the, at Bojangles is not too long. Right. It's not a biblical hope. Biblical hope has to rest on something that is certain, something that is immovable, unshakable, something that we can put stake our life on. That's what biblical hope must rest in. And listen, something I haven't dealt with yet, and I wanted to bring back up. We must, if we're going to have biblical hope, we have to. Know that God that existed before the foundation of the world has spoken to His people and that which He said was going to happen has either happened or it will happen. If not, how can I trust it? And so this creed, if you got it open, look at it. Verses 3 and 4. Notice why this is so important. He said, For I delivered to you... As of first importance, what I saw also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to what? The Scriptures. That He was buried according to the Scriptures. That He was raised according to the Scriptures. He, on a third day, He was raised. Just like the Bible said. What Scriptures? What was, what was their hope resting on? 
the Old Testament. The New Testament was being written as they speak, right? Here's my question. I ask myself this. If no Jewish person was looking for a physical resurrection and they knew the Old Testament, how can Paul claim that the Old Testament Scripture says Jesus would be resurrected? You with me? Let me say that again. If no Jewish person was looking for a physical resurrection and they knew the Old Testament, how can Paul here claim that the Old Testament Scripture says Jesus would be resurrected? Go to Matthew chapter 12. I'll give you an example. Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 40. It says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, no Jewish person who was reading the story of Jonah would say, Oh, our Messiah is going to be resurrected. Would they? No. What had to happen? You see, it was only after the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ that Jesus was able to open up the minds of His people and show them what the Scriptures had pointed to all along. He had to be alive or none of this would have ever made sense. Let me show you. Luke 24. Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 44. This is Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of the Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed from power from on high. The only thing that will move us from fear to hope is something that is immovable, unchangeable, and trustworthy. What brought the disciples from fear to hope? Well, the risen Jesus did. And so today, I said this this week to to a woman who's been through some hell in her life. And this is all I have to give her. You understand? And this is all you got. Either this is true or it's not. And if it's not true, it's all on you. But if it's true, we can stake our very lives on it. I can give that person hope today. Because this word gives her hope. I can give her hope today. Because I'm not going to give her a pill I'm going to give her the risen Jesus because he can set her free. That's the gospel I have. And it's been given to you. And we are responsible for it.
Because as the prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God, it's going to stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord, all of us, all of us have a past that is, that is sometimes painful. Maybe sometimes we look at it and say most of this seemed to be sort of meaningless. And Lord, whatever that is, and however we truly feel, Lord, we bring it to you now in response to this, that Lord, your, your son paid it all. Couldn't be perfect, so he was. You love me enough not to crush me under your wrath, but redeem me by your grace. And I have that hope that resurrected Jesus is beside of you right now, interceding for us as we pray. Hope that I can take to anybody. And so, Lord, we come to you now. Before we respond by walking out and living in obedience, Lord, we long to come to you now and worship you. And so, God, I pray that no one would come and stand up as they, we bring our offerings and as we come to the table in an unworthy way. And so, Lord, we come to you now with our empty hands. Maybe even our broken hearts and our tired bodies and our tired minds. And we this is say, this is what we have to offer. And so, Lord, we pray that as we respond in worship, you would fill us with your grace. That you would give us what we need. That you would pour your spirit out on your people. Lord, we come to the table as sinners in need of grace, as tired people in need of strength, as discouraged people in need of hope, as depressed people in need of courage. And say, Lord, who do we have but you? So as we come to the tables, we take that cup and that bread in our hands and we remember that your son is our only hope. And that because he lives, one day us and all that have went by faith before us will rise again and form one choir that forever sings and enjoys and lives for you. Lord, we choose to live for you now as we wait. And so, Lord, we ask you to receive our worship. Shower us with our grace as we respond in worship to the praise of your glorious name. And in Jesus' name, amen.